0: We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to napod.xyz if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day.
1: Good evening. My name's Carl. I'm an alcoholic. Well, that was—he was rather kind. I'm wondering whether that was twenty dollars worth or two hundred dollars worth. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's a, a pleasure to be here, and I really would like to thank my friend Larry for for having me here. And uh, had a great dinner at a steakhouse where everybody was in the program at the whole whole steakhouse. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I had a dinner with uh, Larry's friend Danny and, and Christian. It was good to see Christian again. Anyway, it's a, uh, this feels strange. Well, I'll tell you later why it feels strange to be up here at a, in a pulpit. <clears throat> Brings back childhood memories, actually. Alright. The most important thing that I can tell you about myself is that I'm an alcoholic. It's really the, I could t- tell you about, you know, being a, uh, a father, uh, a son, uh, an attempt at being a businessman, uh, what, whatever other aspects of my life, I could tell you, but there's nothing more important than, being, than the fact that I'm an alcoholic. It's the most prevalent thing in my life. And the reason I believe that I'm an alcoholic is really very simple. I've got a really bizarre relationship with alcohol. That is why I believe I'm an alcoholic. No other reason. That's the only reason I believe I'm an alcoholic. I've got a really strange relationship with alcohol. And this strange relationship that I have with alcohol takes on a couple of forms. The first part of my bizarre relationship with alcohol happens when I drink it. A very strange thing happens when I drink booze. The the book calls it an allergic reaction. And the book says the symptom of this allergic reaction that I have to alcohol happens when I drink uh It's called the phenomenon of craving. And the best way that I can describe this thing the book calls the phenomenon of craving in my life is that it seems like whenever I drink booze, the more booze I drink, the thirstier I get. It happens with nothing else, just, just booze. An example of that is they're kind enough to give me this uh, bottle of water that over the next hour or so that I'm talking with you, I will probably drink half this bottle of water. I don't know, if my mouth gets dry, I might finish this whole bottle of water. But I can absolutely guarantee you that once I finish this bottle of water, I am not going to go buy a case of water and lock myself in my hotel room. (laughs) I'm not. I absolutely promise you, I'm not going to do that. But if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, this bizarre physical reaction that I get to alcohol, if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, well, then just say no would have wiped out alcoholism, wouldn't it? Early 80s, Nancy Reagan came out and said, just say no. I would have, and I imagine you would have gone, oh, (laughs) no and just gone on and lived a happy, successful life just saying no. But I have this other bizarre part of my relationship with alcohol, and that happens when I'm not drinking it. It seems that if I don't drink for a day, a week, or a month, of and by myself, I have a mind that is able to rationalize and justify my walk back to the next drink at all costs. And it does not matter about the pain, humiliation, and suffering of a day or a week or a month ago, and it certainly does not matter whether it was my pain and humiliation or your pain and humiliation. It does not matter. That does not come into play at all. But somehow, way, my mind is able to paint this picture to make it okay to drink again. So I can't drink successfully because of this physical reaction that I get. But I cannot, of and by myself, not drink successfully. I'm damned if I do. I'm damned if I don't. It's the ultimate catch-22 called alcoholism if i could do either one of those things successfully if i could drink successfully or if on my own i could not drink successfully i would not be here i there'd be no reason for me to be here i also seem to have a strange spiritual connection to to alcohol Um, the best way i can describe it is to tell you this story In the year 2000, my mother asked me if I would go to Iceland with her to go see search, search out relatives. I'm I'm uh, I'm Icelandic and I'm Swedish, and she wanted me to go to Iceland with her, and then after that to go meet my brother and his wife and his kids down in France. They were down in France for the for the summer. And after we went to Iceland, that's a whole other story. After we were done there, we went down to France to meet my brother and his wife and his kids. And one of the nights we were there, we went out to. It was like a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience out to one of these countryside French uh, castles, a chateau, where we had a 13-course meal. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these 13-course meals, but with every single course that they, they would bring, they would also bring this tiny little glass of wine, and the waiter or the maitre d' would tell a story about this glass of wine the the vineyard behind it the family behind the vineyard the history of the family and gave all sorts of interesting facts so my brother and his wife and my mother were trying these little glasses of wine i was trying all of the diet cokes of the region there were no stories uh, behind those you know i was 13 i was already 13 years sober in uh, in in the year 2000 and so uh As we're going along, if if there's ever an appropriate place to drink a little extra, it would be there. And in fact, my brother and his wife were indeed, they were trying each one. And if they liked one, uh, they would get another one. And they were just having a ball, you know, uh, doing this. And my mother, after two tiny little glasses of wine, when the waiter brought the third, she said, no more. And I kind of look over and I thought, Mom, come on. I mean, uh, if there's ever a a time, look at this. We're sitting here, this beautiful castle in, in, uh, in Avignon, France. Look at the countryside. It's just amazing. Look at the colors and got a string quartet playing and, you know, drink a little. I'm driving. Drink a little extra. And she says, absolutely not. I don't like the way it makes me feel. Now, I should have left well enough alone, but I it piqued my interest and I said, How is it that it makes you feel? And she says, well, as you said, Carl, I'm sitting here in a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Look at this beautiful castle we're sitting at in this amazing courtyard. I'm looking at the beautiful colors of the countryside. I'm listening to amazing music, and I'm here talking with people that I just love with all my heart. And if I drink a little bit too much alcohol the colors of the countryside will start to get blurry and dull. The music will start to sound shallow, and I will have a hard time talking with you. Do you, do you get it? She just described the exact opposite relationship to alcohol than I have. Because what she's saying is, of and by herself, She sees the colors of life. She hears the music, and she can connect with other human beings. If you add just a little bit too much alcohol, it all dulls down. Me, oven by myself, I can't, I can't see the colors of life. I can't hear the music, and you are really goddamn boring. I add add alcohol and all of a sudden the colors come alive. I can hear the music. I will tell you where that cello is made, whether I know or not. (laughs) And you become very interesting, but not as interesting as me. (laughs) So it's no wonder through my teenage years and my early 20s that my mother, if she come down to get me out of some sort of custody situation, it's no wonder she would look at me in astonishment and say, how could you have done this again? And I would, from the depths of my soul, want to say something like, I know it looks bad now. I agree. I agree this doesn't look good, but the other day it seemed like a good idea to drink. And it's no wonder that she, through my life, people would say, why do you drink that way? And from the depths of my soul, I would want to say, why don't you drink this way? It's because of that. They drink too much alcohol and everything gets blurry and, and dull. You know? Why would you chase it to the gates of insanity or death if that happens to you? So alcohol, for me, seems to be my only connection to life prior to Alcoholics Anonymous. Life only made sense somewhere between the sixth and eighth drink. That's when life made, made sense. And I set this relationship up with alcohol that I just described to you right from the get-go when I first started drinking. And I started drinking uh, quite a bit later than a lot of people in AA. I was 11. Um, that is, That is, that's very late these days. And we lived in Seattle at that time, and a typical morning in seventh grade uh, for me would be I'd show up early for school, not for study hall or anything, but to meet my new friends at the very edge of the school property, Loser's Corner. Every school's got a Loser's Corner. It's about 10 feet off of the school property, and we would show up there early before school, and kids would hang there and smoke cigarettes and try to look cool. And we would also have what I like to call the playground cocktail. That is a jar full of whatever anybody could have ripped off out of the parents' liquor cabinet the night before, and that jar is pretty scary because nobody's been to bartending school yet. So there are equal amount there's equal amounts of whiskey, vodka, cream de mint, you know, vermouth in there. I mean, it's just scary in that jar. And you can imagine five or six of us, eleven, twelve year olds, handing that jar around and <laughs> choking it down and and of course it was the early seventies, so we're smoking that commercial pot. Anybody remember that stuff? Four finger lids, ten dollars a bag, seeds and stems and the whole bit. And it was even before Ziploc baggies were invented when it would just be a regular glad bag. And as you'd roll that bag up, there'd be about nine people spit on it. And you're like, oh, man. <laughs> and we'd pack all those seeds and stems and leaves into a homemade pipe, maybe made out of plumbing fittings and a screen. Or if we were really desperate that morning, it would be a toilet paper roll with aluminum foil and pinholes in there. You guys remember that? we pack all those seeds and stems and leaves in there. we hit the lighter, and it sees and stems be popping. We'd be burning holes in our clothes. <laughs> and then we'd look at each other and go, like, are we going to school today? It's really funny. Nobody ever said, yeah, hurry up. We're late for math. It just never went that way. Now, it's at this point, it's at this point that many people speak in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's at this point that many people interrupt themselves, and they say something like this. I don't mean to offend anybody, but drugs are a part of my story. I understand, and I have great respect for what people are attempting to do when they say that. They are attempting to protect singleness of purpose. Vitally important aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous should never be forgotten. But that idea aside, I still think it's a really bizarre practice for alcoholics to apologize to other alcoholics for doing drugs while drinking or in between drunks. I, uh i i understand apologizing to police officers and judges and uh we don't we don't have time for that we're i understand apologizing to police officers and judges but i don't know why we apologize to each each other in fact the most bizarre example of that i've ever seen I was in this meeting a number of years ago. I was in a big speaker meeting somewhere in Southern California, and that night the speaker was up there just giving one of the most ugly, heinous, blow-by-blow drunkalogues I've ever heard. And i got to tell you, when I'm out there and I'm listening to a speaker, and, and it, the, uh, when his story starts to get ugly, the uglier it gets, the more excited I get. I think that night I was on the edge of my chair drooling, looking up at this guy going, yeah, buddy, go, 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 go. And at at one point in this really ugly story, this guy went on to say, you know, I had four DUIs. That's driving under the influence. I don't know what you guys call them over here in in Atlanta. He he goes, I had four DUIs. And the judge said, if I get one more DUI, I'm going to prison for sure. He says, sure enough, two weeks later, I'm on the freeway in a blackout. I hit a family of four. They all wound up in the hospital. And I wound up in prison. And in prison, I sodomized men. I was sodomizing. I don't mean to offend anybody, but I did some drugs, too. I was the only one that thought that was strange that night. Uh, anyway, by the time I'm 14 there in Seattle, I'm the neighborhood drunk. I'm the neighborhood pot dealer. I forgot to mention, but my father was the neighborhood Lutheran minister. Uh, that's why being up here brings back a lot of childhood memories. And uh, my parents, really good, solid people, really, really. I mean, they gave me every single advantage that any adolescent could have a really healthy idea, an open-minded idea about, about a relationship with God. Every financial advantage that I could have. My mother was a really sharp businesswoman. who. So I had everything available that any adolescent could have. But by the time I'm 14, my vocabulary, you know, it wasn't a secret. My parents saw me withering away in front of their eyes. It wasn't a secret. They weren't like, blinded by this. I mean, it was obvious. I mean, I'm 14, my hair is growing down onto my shoulders, over my very bloodshot eyes, and my vocabulary is, whoa. (laughs) Wow. Right? That's my vocabulary. And my parents tried to help. They tried to help, but they didn't understand alcoholism. They didn't understand that their son was alcoholic. They blamed my problems on people, places, and things. They thought, If we can get him away from that damn group of kids he's hanging out with, things will get better. If we can get him out of that damn public school system, things will get better. They tried all of the above. But you see, I'm an alcoholic. My problems are not based upon people, places, and things. My problems are based upon my physical and mental relationship to alcohol. You see, if you change the people, places, and things in somebody's life like mine, all that happens is that I'm loaded with different people. In different places, ruining different things. That's all that happens. When I was almost 18, I barely scraped out of the public school system there in Seattle, and my parents decided that Seattle was the problem. If we can get them out of Seattle, things will get better. So they sent me 300 miles away to Washington State University. I spent three years at that university on my parents' money, and in that three years, I got almost 10 credits. Um, at any given time, my grade point average matched my blood alcohol content is what was going on. By the time I was 22, this little story I'm about to tell you will let you know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, my, my father was Swedish, my mother is Icelandic, therefore I look like a polar bear. And I don't know whether this custom I'm about to tell you about is Scandinavian or whether it's Lutheran. I don't know. But at Christmas time, my parents wouldn't just send out Christmas cards to their friends and relatives my parents would send out this big, long Christmas letter that said everything the family had been been doing that year. And when I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas. And as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, the first paragraph talked about what my parents had been doing that year. Another impressive year, I'm sure. The next paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year. And that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in human resources. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this. She saw that. Her hobbies are this, this, and this. She's a very happy young woman. We're very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric... Just graduated from Western Washington State University with a degree in marketing. He's now working for a large advertising firm here in downtown Seattle. He loves to golf. He loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named Microsoft. Hence, the summer in a villa in France, right? That all adds up now, doesn't it? I'm not resentful at all. And... uh, They love to golf together. They love to travel together. He's a very happy young man. We're very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. It's about this same time that a, 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 a drug deal went really, really badly. It was just a really bad night. It's just one of those nights where minding my own business and all of a sudden windows are broken, doors are kicked down, there's guns, there's badges, there's handcuffs. I'm on the wrong end of all of it. And uh, so I joined the Navy. And that's what I did. Um, What I'm about to tell you should scare the living daylights out of you if you care anything about the security of the United States. But on my way into the Navy, I passed a potential test. It's called the ASVAP test. And this test that I took qualified me to become a nuclear engineer in the United States Navy. (laughs) That should worry you that the United States Navy would even think maybe possibly or even remotely about putting somebody like me near anything nuclear. However, however, they made me take another test when I showed up at that base for boot camp and I could not pass that particular test. It's called a urinalysis test is what it's called. <laughs> I still remember I was at Great Lakes. Uh, I was in the barracks there. I'd been in uh, boot camp for about 10 days and the Master of Arms came marching in and he had a clipboard with some names on it. I knew my name was going to be on that list. I, you know. And he read off the names, and sure enough, five or six of us were on there for going positive on our first year analysis test coming in. And we were taken over to the other side of the Great Lakes Naval Station, the the administrative side. And the other men were taken to this one building, but I was taken over to another building across the street, and I was marched right into the commanding officer's office, the man who ran the whole Great Lakes Naval Station. And it was a big office, plush carpeting, big oak desk, pictures of naval vessels along the wall, and I was marched right in front of his desk, and he looked up, and he asked me my name, and I gave him my name. And this would have been the early '80s, so he had this telephone on this big oak desk with a speakerphone attachment on it, and he pushed the button on the speakerphone attachment, and into this speakerphone he said, "Walt, that's my father's name. <clears throat> my father had been a reservist chaplain in the United States Navy for the last 40 years since World War II. He was a very high-ranking officer in the in the reservist Navy." This was an old World War II buddy of my father's that was running the Great Lakes Naval Station. Yeah, it's perfect timing. And into the speakerphone, he said, Walt, out of consideration for our long-term acquaintance and friendship, I thought I would call you before I took any action, but your son has gone positive on his first-year analysis test, and technically I'm supposed to kick him out right now. What do you feel we should do with your son? Now, normally... When my father spoke, you could tell by the tone of his voice that he loved life. He loved what he had the privilege of doing in his community and around the world. And he you could just hear it in his voice, that he just had a real passion for life. But every once in a while, there was there would be this other voice that would come out. And it would be this voice like somebody had just kicked him in the stomach. And I had heard that voice a lot in the previous 7 to 10 years, and it was always when he was dealing with me because he just did not know what to do with me anymore. And that was the voice that I heard come across that telephone that morning, and I heard my father's voice say, it's just none of my concern anymore. Click, dial tone. If I could have just slithered out of that room that morning, I would have. Uh, that man decided to keep me in the Navy anyway. They, uh, thank God for you guys, he took away that nuclear status. And just kept me in the conventional Navy. And a year and a half later, I'm a lower rank than when I first came in. Um, well, you guys know how that could happen. It's, uh, you know, when I'd be out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I'd look at my surroundings and I would see that I'm in the Navy. I'd see, well, by God, I'm on a big gray ship. And I'm in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I'm in a uniform, no doubt about it. I'm in the United States Navy. However, that ship would pull into a port, and I would leave that ship, and I would take a drink. And I would totally forget that I'm in the United States Navy. And I would come back to where I had last seen the ship when the drunk was over. And I have no idea at this point in my life when that's going to be. I, do, I have no idea whether a drunk is going to be three hours or three days. And it's a very strange feeling being in a foreign country on a large pier at 6 a.m., and you're going... <clears throat> You know, there was a destroyer here the other day. Uh... <laughs> so one morning our ship was back in port and I'd been drinking all weekend, which was very, nothing out of the ordinary. And I was driving my car into the base early Monday morning. I was late. I had a, a pint uh, between my legs. This is all standard procedure. In fact, when I, if I'd been drinking all weekend and I had to go to work, what I would do is I would have, have a pint, and I would uh, drink half that pint on my way into, uh, into, into the base. I would stash half that pint underneath the seat. At noontime, I would run out, and I'd finish the other half a pint. That's Carl's way of kind of sliding into Tuesday. Um, this particular morning, I was concentrating on getting that half a pint in me, and I was driving into the base, and there's a long straightaway, and there's a guard shack where a Marine stands duty. And if you're going to bring your car onto the base, you need to pull up at that guard shack and the Marine will check your military ID. He'll check the sticker on your car. If everything's in order, he'll allow you to bring your car onto the base. Uh, this particular morning, as I said, I was concentrating on getting that half a pint in me and I, I remember looking up and the Marine had his head out of the guard shack. He had this look like... And I was wondering what he was so excited about until I looked down and saw I was still going 40 miles an hour. I tried to swerve. The car hit this median on the right-hand side and flipped over and bam, right through that guard shack. I can still see this Marine doing this big dive out of there. And the Navy was very angry at me that morning. Um, The Marine was all right. They were patching me up at the hospital um, and they were reading new charges on me. And this is nothing new or significant, new charges. That's just what happens. And, you know new charges, and uh, is this what happens in a guy's life like mine about every 90 days if you're living the way I'm living? So that was nothing significant. The most significant thing that happened that morning is the Navy doctors prescribed this stuff called anabuse for me, and they sent this prescription back to the ship's doctor, and every morning before quarters, I would have to show up at sickbay, and the corpsman would put this little white pill on my tongue and make me sit there for a half an hour to make sure it actually ingested in my system. Over the next 7 to 10 days, I started to experience the most cunning, baffling, and powerful side of this disease we call alcoholism, and that is that I had no alcohol or drugs in my system, and I was slowly going insane. When you take alcohol away from an alcoholic like me, and you do not replace it with something like Alcoholics Anonymous, I literally, restless, irritable, and discontent is an understatement. I literally, more than likely, in fact I was, I was diagnosed with a manic depressive disorder, uh, I had to. I st- they started sending me to a psychologist. Um, I, I mean, they just had all sort. Because what happens to me is I absolutely start to implode in on myself. I absolutely. It feels like this thin film drops down between me and you, and I cannot. I don't know how to talk to you. I get sick to the, my stomach, and. My anxiety level—it's—it's it's like I can't even breathe. That's what happens to me when you take alcohol away from me. And I remember counting those days on 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 that anabuse. Just—it's been four days, and <clears throat> I'm on anabuse. Now it's been six days and <clears throat> I'm on anabuse. Now it's been eight days, six hours, and fifteen minutes, and I'm on anabuse. I started to look around that ship. The other men, they're talking behind my back. All 300 of them. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way in AA? The only difference is that in AA, we are talking behind your back. <laughs> only with love and tolerance in Atlanta, I'm sure. <clears throat> On the 10th day, I just snapped, and I went AWOL from my ship, and I locked myself in a little hotel room in downtown San Diego, the Plaza Hotel, 4th and Broadway. If you're ever in San Diego, please go visit it. It's still there. This would have been 1986. It was $13 a night. I checked uh, about six or seven months ago. Uh, They've remodeled it. They've upgraded it. It's now $13.95 a night. I locked myself in this little hotel room and I got a bottle of vodka and a shot glass. I remember sitting on the edge of the bed and looking at the bottle of vodka on this rickety little end table. And as I sat there looking at the bottle of vodka, I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me a very stern warning about drinking on top of Antibus when they prescribed the Antibus for me. They had told me, son, you need to understand that if you drink on top of this Antibus, you'll get one of two reactions. One reaction is you will get violently ill. The other reaction is you might die. I remember looking at the bottle of vodka and I thought... Well, I wonder which reaction I'm going to get. I took one shot and nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure. And I took another shot. All of a sudden I felt tingly in the face, so I looked in this cracked little mirror that was in this hotel room and I was bright red, blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. Took another shot. All of a sudden, I could feel my heart going, boom, boom, boom. Looked at my shirt. I was drenched in sweat. And then all of a sudden, I was like, (gasps) (gasps) hyperventilating. (gasps) We're doing all right so far. You guys are really sick if you think this is funny. I have proof. I have proof how you may look. You you are really a good-looking group of alcoholics, but I have proof that how you look is nothing about who you really are. And here's the proof. I'm going to show you that normal people do not find this abuse story funny at all. When I was two years sober, I got an honorable discharge out of the Navy, and one of the, my first sponsor and his sponsor were uh, uh, real sticklers about the amend step. And one of the amends that I could not make while I was still in the Navy that I still had to make was that my parents had paid for a bachelor's degree. I did not have one. I had two choices. Either pay them back every nickel that they paid for that or go get what they had paid for in the first place. So that's what I did and that's how I wound up in the town of Kavina that I'm still at. I, you know, I've been in Kavina for uh, over 20 years now. I moved there when I was two years sober. And so I signed up for this uh, telecommunications business management bachelor's program. And one of the classes I had to take in the first couple of semesters was a business presentation course. It's like a speech class designed for business presentations, I guess. And in the first couple of days of this speech class, the instructor was randomly pointing at students, throwing them up in front of the room, giving them a topic to talk on for three minutes, And the instructor was doing this just to see what he had to work with for the semester. And after about seven or eight students were thrown up there, the instructor pointed at me. And I walked up to the front of the room. And from the back of the room, the instructor shouted out, Talk about a bizarre situation in your life. (laughs) So I told them about drinking on top of Antibus. They did not respond the way you guys responded. They were like... There were, though, a couple of guys in the back who went, Right on, dude. All right. So anyway, I'm back in the hotel room. I'm red-faced. I'm hyperventilating. I'm sweating. And I took another shot. And up it came. My second sponsor, Eddie Cochran, God rest his soul, one of the pioneers of Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous, he died with 47 years of sobriety. He used to call what happened to me next, projectile regurgitation. Right. Now, what, to describe to you what that is, is you guys all know that in the middle of a drunk, you get a little warning. Right? That little sour taste comes up in the back of your throat, maybe a little bit comes up into your mouth, and you kind of go, mm, and and you know, you know you've got anywhere from five seconds to maybe 30 seconds. And if there's a bathroom, you're like beelining to the bathroom. If you just got to get the window down, well, you get the window down. If it's your friend's shoe, well, oh, well, that's just the way it goes. But you get a little warning. On this ambulance. there is no warning. It was just oh, just straight up and out. Thank God the Plaza Hotel is the type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room as the bed. It's a design feature, I believe. Maybe to make convicts feel more at home. I'm not sure. But I found the magic of drinking on top of Andy. You said if I would hang in there and if I would keep drinking and keep puking and keep drinking and keep puking for about an hour enough of the antibuse would kick out of my system and I would quit throwing up and I would just be left with red face, I would ventilating and sweating and I already told you, I'm all right with that. <laughs> so I do want, and it, they don't use it very much anymore but if there is somebody out there that is still on antibuse, I want you to know you can drink on top of antibuse. Please do not leave right this second and go, woohoo, speaker said I can go drink on antibuse. I have to give you instructions. Okay, if you're gonna drink on top of antibush, you need to stay for about another 90 seconds so I can give you the instructions. You've got to be able to do two things at the very same time in order to be successful at drinking on top of antibus. The first thing you gotta do is you gotta hang in there. You really, really gotta hang in there. There's no half measuring this. You gotta be committed. Okay? And at the very same time. Don't die. <laughs> if, you can, if you can put those two things together, I invite you, have at it. I drank on top of Andrews the last seven months of my drinking. The only words to describe this are desperation drinking. There's no other way to describe this. My second to my last drunk, I was left for dead in a motel parking lot in a town called National City, just south of San Diego. It is like the south central Los Angeles uh, area of San Diego. Um, I was in the middle of a drunk. It was 3 a.m. and it just seemed like a good idea to start wandering the streets looking for crack cocaine. It just seemed like a good idea. But all of a sudden there were fish flying and they were not mine. And then there was lots of blood going everywhere. Apparently that was mine uh next thing I knew is that I came to the next morning. And you know how when you come to uh, out of a blackout and you start looking around, am I in my own room? Am I, you know, am I where am I? You know, the big joke in AA that it's apparently some sort of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization when you come out of a blackout and you look and you see somebody there and you go, oh, no, right? That's not pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. The pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization is when you come out of a blackout They wake up and look at you, and they go, ah, and they run. (laughs) That's the worst. But this particular morning, I came to, and the same thought process, where am I? I'm looking around to where I am, and what I saw is uh, I saw men and women in surgical masks with tools in their hands and bright lights behind them. This is evidence of a very bad night. Um, They were doing reconstructive surgery on my face with no anesthesia, and the reason they cannot, anybody, any medical professionals out there know this is true, that if you, if you are brought in and you are extremely drunk, they can't use anesthesia because they don't know what other kind of drugs you might have taken the night before. So you get operated on just, oh, it's just really a lot of fun. That was a bad night. My last night of drinking, I'm being led out of San Diego jail uh, in handcuffs, uh, being transferred from civilian authorities to military authorities and uh, i was being brought back up to the quarterdeck of my ship lots of official type people standing around i'm in handcuffs and the officer deck put his arm up and said wrong answer orders have already been processed on this loser the orders are 90 days in the brig bad conduct discharge or treatment now as i stood there in handcuffs apparently some sort of option was thrown out on the table and i do not remember as i stood there in handcuffs i don't remember thinking oh god you are so good to me that you have given this treatment option, I'm just not, oh, I'm just so ready to get sober. I do not remember thinking or feeling that, nor do I remember thinking or feeling, and it would have been more likely, would have been much more likely for me to be thinking, hey, if I just act like I want this treatment thing, maybe I can beat this rap too. That would have been more likely, but I don't remember thinking or feeling that. I now know that it would not have mattered what I was thinking or feeling that morning, well, because I was in handcuffs. And I don't know about your experience in handcuffs, uh, but my experience in handcuffs was always the same. Whoever had me in handcuffs never ever once, did they ever, never once did they ever say, so what's your opinion on this matter? It just, it just does not go that way in handcuffs. When you're in handcuffs, you go where they say. And I was taken up to a treatment center up at the Miramar base, up in the north end of San Diego. And when the handcuffs were take, when the doors were locked behind me, that's when they took the handcuffs off me. That is who Carl Morris is without Alcoholics Anonymous. That is what society feels about how I act out there in the world without Alcoholics Anonymous. They're w- they're willing to take the handcuffs off me when the doors are locked behind me. Anyway, I'm in this treatment center. We're gonna apparently 35 of us are gonna be going through this 45 uh, day thing. And in the first couple of days, people are coming from various ships, bases, and commands, and they're doing paperwork on us. They're doing medical checkups on us, and they're trying to figure out who we are and from what base we are. But they they have us in these group therapy sessions, these big group therapy sessions during the day, and they're trying to get us to talk. They had this assistant facilitator for the first couple of days trying to get us to talk to each other, and nobody's talking. I mean, it's just arms folded looking down at the floor. And on about, and this facilitator was getting very frustrated with us. And on the, the second or third day, this fellow raises his hand. His name is Paco. He's from some other base somewhere. And he raises his hand in this group therapy session. And he says, I hear that I'm supposed to be rigorously honest with you guys. I want you guys to know that Paco's not my real name. Paco's just a name I've always used when things look like trouble. And when I got here the other day, this looked like trouble. But I want to get honest now, and my real name is Randy. Will you guys call me Randy from now on? The rest of us looked up from the floor just enough to say, yeah, whatever. Nice to meet you, Randy. But this facilitator got really excited and said, oh, my God, this is the first breakthrough of any honesty of any of you SOBs. Later that afternoon, Randy was paraded in front of us. They slapped a gold name tag on him that said Randy. And then we were all informed that whenever staff was not around, Randy's in charge. On the seventh day in this place, they took us all to our first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. At least it was my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. All I know is we'd been in this place seven days, and uh, over the 1MC in the afternoon, they said, the 1MC is like an intercom system through the barracks. They said, civilian clothes, parking lot, 6 p.m. And we were all standing out there in civilian clothes, and five white vans pull up, and we were all told which van to get into, and each van took off to a different meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous somewhere in, in, in the San Diego area. And sure enough, the van I was in showed up at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we came in, you know, 30 seconds before the meeting started, like they always do, and they have reasons for that. And we all sat in the back, and you guys started your meeting. And I remember, I don't remember much, but I remember a little bit of my first meeting and my first impression. And what I remember is that a bunch of people got up to the podium, and I I later found out that in San Diego, more than anywhere else, that in participation meetings, they do not allow you to share from your chair. You must come up to the podium. And so I saw a long string of people coming up to the podium. And the first few read something out of some uh, a book or off some sheets. And then the the remaining 12 or 13 people that got up there just talked for three to five minutes, just off the cuff. And as I sat there listening to what they read and what those people said in those three to five minutes, I sat there in the back and I thought, oh, my God, they know. Jesus, they know. Now, if you would have seen me there thinking in the back and nudged me and said, so what is it that they know that you think you know? I would have said, well, I don't know. But they know. And what it was is I believe those people in that meeting that night were sharing responsibly. I believe they were sharing responsibly that night in that meeting because I believe that I was sitting there hearing what Alcoholics Anonymous wants every new person to hear? I didn't understand what I was hearing. I didn't get the, the depth and the gravity of what I was hearing, but what I, I now know what I was hearing. I was, I was identifying with two things. I was identifying with the way you described what happened to you when you drank. And even more importantly, I was identifying with the way you described the way you felt when you were not drinking. And I'm convinced that's what Alcoholics Anonymous wants every new person to hear. And I was hearing that. The other thing that I remember hearing at that meeting, in the 22 years that I've been here in Alcoholics Anonymous, I have never heard the alcoholic mind described better than in my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. This fellow got called on. He walked all the way to the front. He introduced himself. He said one sentence, and he sat down. This guy got up there and he said, My name's Jack. I'm an alcoholic my mind would have killed my body a long time ago except it needed it for transportation and he sat down and i I had another one of those experiences of he knows he gets it he gets it the next night they took us to another meeting and as much as i identified at the first meeting I got just as confused at the next meeting. And I don't know what kind of meeting it was, but all I know is I. the more they talked, the more confused I got because everybody at this meeting was talking about something called a drug of choice. People are they're saying, well, my drug of choice is. And somebody else, well, my drug of choice is. And the more they said that, the more I, I'm sitting in the back saying to myself, oh, for Christ's sake, was I supposed to be choosing out there? Do, do, do they want me to choose now? What are they talking about? So the next morning, back at the treatment center, I asked, I asked the counselor who'd been assigned to us. I go, Mary, last night in the meeting, they were talking about something called a drug of choice. What on earth do they mean by that? And she said, Carl, let's play a game. Now, that worried me because she was wanting me to focus and to pay attention to what she was saying. And that was a little difficult because when they did their medical checkup on me they found out that my liver was uh extended my pancreas was shutting down I had extreme alcoholic edema so they had me on these anticonvulsant medications for about the first week or so just I guess they were doing that they were doing that just so that uh, I wouldn't like throw the floppy fish in one of those group therapy sessions and ruin and ruin everybody's day I guess But if you've ever been on those detox medications, you know what I'm talking about. Your field of vision is just fine, about like this. But there's dancing squiggly things over here. And when you turn to see what that is, now it's over here. And and so you're kind of like... So if you ever see somebody that raised their hand as being new and they got the hospital bracelet on and they're a little shifty, and you might know what's going on. But Mary says, let's play a game. And so I go, okay. And she said, well, figure out what your drug of choice is. Imagine this, Carl. Imagine I walked into this room, she says. Im- imagine I walked into this room and I had a tray. And on that tray I had a bottle of Jack Daniels, an ounce of cocaine, and an ounce of tie sticks. Which one would you take? I started to drool right out the side of my mouth. I are like, ah, i take them all. And she started... She started to snap her fingers, settle down, settle down, Carl. You can't have them all. Play the game. When when my eyes came back into focus, I said, "Okay." And she said, which one would you take? And I thought, "Okay. well, I guess I'd take the ounce of cocaine. She said, well, then maybe cocaine is your drug of choice. Do you understand now? And I said, no. She said, what's the problem? I said, well, Mary, the only reason I'd take the ounce of cocaine over the other two is, well, I'd take that ounce of cocaine, I'd get the hell out of this place, and I'd sell two eight balls. Now I'd have enough money for a quarter pound of tie six and a case of Jack Daniels is what I would do. (laughs) Now, the only reason I bring that up is to bring up a very important aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's sobriety days. If you're new or fairly new, and you are wondering whether you're really mostly alcoholic and a little bit drug addict, or am I mostly drug addict and a little bit alcoholic, first thing I want you to do is to go to a lot of open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, talk to people that know what they're talking about, get somebody to go through the book with you and for you to find out what alcoholism really is before you make the potentially fatal decision that you're not. That's the first thing I want you to do. The second thing I want you to do is you got to understand something. No matter what you may think your drug of choice is, there's only one sobriety date. If you work with lots of new people, and I know there's a lot of people in here that do work with a lot of new people, I bet you run across this scenario around your home group like I do in mine every once in a while. See some new guy around my home group, go up to him and say, hey, good to see you. How long do you got? And every once in a while, I get this response. Well, my drinking sobriety date is January 4th. My pot clean date is May 3rd. Oh, I blew my methamphetamine date last night. I was in Walmart all night long. It's like. Wrong answer. One sobriety date. Funniest thing I ever heard about sobriety dates. Same scenario. Saw this guy around my home group for a while, went up to him and said, hey, good to see you. How long do you got? And he said, well, I had 90 days, but I drank last night. So now I have 89 days. I had to think about that one for a second. I think that kind of falls in the same category as being down in Mexico looking at the tequila going, would that affect my U.S. sobriety date? Yes. Yes, sobriety dates are international. Just a little piece of information for the new guy. That's all. Anyway, after 45 days, they are going to let me out of this treatment center, just what the orders were, and they were going to let us out on a Friday. And on the Wednesday before that Friday, they gathered all all 35 of us up, and they put us in this room. And the biggest, meanest counselor in the place came in through a side door, and he was a Marine. And he was in his full-dress uniform that day. And i got to tell you, a Marine in his full-dress uniform is a very impressive and very intimidating sight. And he marched up to this podium that was in front of the room, and we all just went, and it went just dead silent in the room. And he stood up there, and he just panned the room and stared every one of us down. It seemed like forever before he spoke, but he just panned the room and looked at all of us, and then he finally spoke. He said, U-35 have been through one of the finest treatment centers in the world for alcoholism and drug addiction. And this treatment center has been here for many, many years. And over the years, our statistics have shown us that out of U-35, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. Many of you will die, go insane, and wind up in prison. Nice little exit pep talk, don't you think? (laughs) Jesus Many of you will relapse once, twice, maybe 20 times, and then make it back into long-term sobriety. But according to this treatment center statistics, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. If you thought it was quiet before, you could hear a pin drop in the room now. The only thing you could hear was me going, shit. Because I knew if only one of us was going to make it, it was not going to be me. We all knew who it was going to be. It's going to be Randy over here, Guaranteed. He's like the poster boy of the treatment center. So on this Friday afternoon, they're letting us all out and people are are taken back to their ship's bases and commands in various different ways. But there was about four or five of us that had been arrested in vehicles the night before we were thrown into this place. And we had to stand out on the front doorsteps of the treatment center to wait for our vehicles to be brought out of this impound lot. And when they brought my car out of the impound lot, I was so successful when I was out there getting loaded. That when they brought my vehicle out, they brought out my Rolls Canardly. That's the kind of car that rolls down one hill and Canardly make it up the next, is what that is. 68 Volkswagen hole in the floorboard, got to push start the thing. You know, a screwdriver in the side of the, the steering column. But I'm standing there with about three or four other guys, and we're waiting for our cars to be brought up, and all of a sudden, one of the guys I'm standing with points at the other, other edge of the parking lot, and there's a car coming towards us, and they go, Is that Randy in that car? We look a little closer, sure enough, and one of the other guys says, He's drinking already! Sure enough, Randy's got himself a pint. He's polishing it off. He rolls right in front of the, the, the treatment center, right in front of the doorsteps, throws the empty right at our feet. We look up. He's giving us all the finger, and he drives right off. I guess his name was Paco again. I don't know. Next thing that I remember of that day is I showed up at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, a 6 o'clock gong show meeting, and I'm sitting in the back, and the truth about my life is I'm 45 days without a drink. I got a lot of information, and I'm physically feeling better than I have felt since I've been a young teenager. But there had been no spiritual awakening, spiritual experience, or even a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. I had 45 days, I had information, and I was physically feeling better. If there was ever a turning point in my life, it was right there that night at that meeting. Which way is my life going to go? And one guy operating on his primary purpose that night leaned over me and he said, Hey, never seen you here before. What are you doing? I I didn't think quick enough to lie to him because I promise you I would have lied to him if I would have thought for one more second. And I said, uh, you got me. I just got out of a Navy treatment center three hours ago. I don't know what I'm doing. This guy's eyes went BING! Big smile went across his face. I, you know, I didn't understand that there's guys in AA that look, that lurk around meetings looking for the new guy who accidentally admits he doesn't know what he was doing. And at the break, At the break, this guy's fighting his friends off. He's mine! He's mine! I got him! I got him! I got him! (laughs) Now, other than this guy loving to work with newcomer alcoholics, there was something else going on in this guy's life that particular night that made him especially glad to meet me. This guy's girlfriend had left him the night before for one of his friends in his home group. So he was wondering what he was going to do with his weekend. Homicide, suicide, get loaded or grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) And this guy was insane over this woman. Flat out insane. In between the meetings, he'd throw me in the passenger side of his car and he'd start driving and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of those AA radar cars that just made it to the next meeting, I guess. (laughs) But he'd be driving and he'd be yelling at me. You you gotta go to me, you gotta read the book, you gotta get a sponsor. God damn her! Gotta go to me, gotta read the book. Damn it. And I'm like, Jesus. Now I didn't know it, but I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup is what I was getting. But I'm so glad that that guy that night in his pain was a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, had taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and understood that the solution to his pain was out of self, out of self, out of self. I am so glad that that guy that night in his pain was not at home underneath his covers whining into his sponsor's answering machine. Help! Give me a magical answer. She left. What do I do? I'm so glad he was out dragging my sorry butt around. I'm sure he was checking in with his sponsor, right? But I'm so glad he was out dragging my sorry butt around. And one of the things that was really valuable about that that weekend with that guy was that we went to a lot of meetings in the same area of town. And I learned something about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when we're new, that I didn't know, that I didn't learn while I was in that treatment center. By going to so many meetings in the same area of town, I saw other people going to multiple meetings over that weekend. Now, I didn't see anybody else doing 18 meetings, just me and that guy. But I saw other people that were at two or three meetings over that weekend. And what I learned about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when we're new, I'm going to correlate it to a football game. Now, a football team is out there on the field for one reason and one reason only, to win the game. And how do they win that game? They huddle up, they make a plan, and they do one play. Then they huddle up again, they make another plan, and they do one play. That's exactly what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the game around here is one day without a drink, you're a big winner. And how do we do that one day? We run in here and we huddle up. We go, remember, we're bodily and mentally different from our fellows. Break! And we go out there and we try a little of this and we try a little of that. And after that weekend, I got back to my ship, and the one other sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous on my ship was waiting for me. His name was Bob W. He became my first sponsor before I asked him to sponsor me. He's just one of those guys in Alcoholics Anonymous that wanted to carry the message. He was only 14 months sober. I was going to be the first one he worked with. But, you know, he had a sponsor. He was in the middle of the steps. And I was like, he viewed me like gold being delivered to him on a silver platter, right, because I had nowhere to go. And he was gonna, he was just all over me. And that man, I am so grateful for that man for a million, million reasons. But the main reason is I am so grateful that the one other guy on my ship that was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous was an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was not somebody who hadn't been to a meeting in six months that didn't wouldn't know what to do with me. I am so glad that this guy was a committed, active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was living an extremely valuable way of life. Because all he had to do to effectively help save my life was stick his hand out and say, "Come, do what I'm doing. Come, do what I'm doing." That's a really valuable way of life. That the way you're living, you can just stick your hand out and say, "Come, do what I'm doing." How valuable is that? My first six months of sobriety, I'm going to a million meetings. I'm the kind of guy that we want a meeting after meeting after meeting, 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 coffee, 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 meeting, 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 coffee, coffee, go to a dance. Ah, can't. Meeting, 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 coffee, 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 meeting, meeting, meeting. And I was running around to meeting after meeting, hoping that the people of Alcoholics Anonymous that were taking their seat in their home group would say something clever, funny or insightful that would allow me to breathe again. I was desperately running from meeting to meeting, waiting for somebody to say something. And more, than, more often than not, somebody would say something at the first meeting or the second meeting or the third meeting where I would go, <gasps> OK. But in the middle of the night, you might find me holding my gut, going, "Oh, God is back," where well, the world would feel like it's closing in on me, and I do not know which way to turn, and that darkness is ugly. And I would be holding my gut, saying, "What's the, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with me?" What happened was, when I was about six and a half months over, the ship had to go out to sea for an extended period of time, and my first sponsor, Bob W, said. You're going to meet me in the aft end of the ship every night at 630, and we're going to talk. And he showed up that uh, first night, and he had that big book, and he slapped it down on the table. He said, come on, have you read it? I've been hounding you about it forever. And I said something like, sure, sure, sure. I've read it. There's like how it works. We antagonists, some doctor with some opinion about something. You're right, I just said something stupid and what he did and this was basically out of ignorance remember i told you he only had 14 months i was the first one he worked with he had not been to a lot of workshops and learning how to work with others he had no other forms to go on he simply opened up the book and started to read from the beginning and when he was tired i would read and when the book asked us to do something we did it he gave me al- out of ignorance he gave me alcoholics anonymous in the purest form two guys way down in an engine room in the middle of the pacific ocean trying to stay sober with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what happened to me over the next 21 days in going through that book with him is that I had what's described in the back of the book as a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. But I did not get the real spiritual awakening, spiritual experience, what I like to call the healing at the level of my soul that was going to be necessary for me to remain sober and comfortable long-term until I did something else. Until I ever so feebly tried to do with someone else what had been done with me. Right? That's when the real meaning and purpose to life started to creep in where I started to get glimpses that maybe I can stay. Maybe I can stay. And one of the most beautiful things that happened to me when I went through that book the first time and really found out what alcoholism was, although I would still have those nights where I'd be holding my gut, the big gift was I was not saying What's wrong with me? I had the gift of saying alcoholism. That was huge to be able to identify what's wrong with me because there's nothing worse than having that soul sickness and not knowing what it is. It was huge to me. I also learned that if I have... uh, found a solution here in Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a real responsibility to take my seat in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And how I learned that, I'll never forget. My first sponsor, Bob W., and I would often uh, split a hotel room when the ship would pull into a port. We'd always like to split, get off that ship, so we would split a hotel room, and uh, we would find the meetings in that town. This particular time, we're in Victoria, British Columbia, We went and got a hotel room, and then we uh, went off to the AA meeting hall. And after the meeting, Bob said, you know, Carl, I'm tired. I'm not feeling that well. I'm going to go back to the hotel room. I stayed out later with the AAers, went to another meeting out to eat, chased a girl. I don't know. Probably all three is what I did. But after about an hour and a half or two, I came back to the hotel room, and there was Bob. And Bob had found this guy from our ship named Blair on the street. And Blair was absolutely wasted. Blair did not even know where he was. Bob had him... Pinned up against the headboard on my bed With an end table, a chair, and some pillows And Bob was reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to him And I'm looking at this thinking, this is ridiculous Blair doesn't even know where he's at, you know, he's doing that whole Right but Bob was at it and I don't know I threw in my two cents worth and then Blair just passed out and Bob put him into another hotel room and that's the last I heard of Blair for a number of days we went back into uh, into uh back on the ship and we went down to uh back to San Diego and is a couple of weeks later and it's 3 a.m. in the morning and I'm in my rack on the ship and all of a sudden whoa what what whoa, and it's Bob saying Carl get up Blair's on the Coronado bridge we're going to get him apparently Blair, over the last couple of weeks, had tried to drink, tried not to drink, tried to drink, tried not to drink. He was at the jumping off point. He's on the Coronado Bridge. And I don't know if you know about the Coronado Bridge, but it's an extremely popular suicide spot. It's such a popular suicide spot that they actually have suicide hotline phones up on top just in case you have a change of heart. And Blair had gotten onto that suicide hotline phone. And he was talking to the well-meaning, highly educated counselor on the other end. And this is apparently what Blair was saying to that well-meaning, highly educated counselor. I will only talk to Bob W. (laughs) The counselor was saying, Who's Bob W? And Blair was saying, It's anonymous. So that counselor went and got her supervisor and they both went on there and started hammering questions at him, doing their little, you know, good cop, bad cop kind of thing. And they found out he's from the Navy and what ship he's from. So they take a stab in the dark and they call down to the quarter deck of our ship at 3 a.m. in the morning and they say, is, uh, we know this is a big, you know, a real pot shoot, but is there a Bob W on that ship? Now we got 300 men, but Bob, He'd guard your anonymity at the level of that ship, but he did not guard his own so he could be of service at any time. So the guy who answered the phone said, yeah, 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 Mr. Twelve Steps, we know all about him. So they go and get Bob, and Bob comes down. Carl, we go. All right. Uh, I hop up, and we get into Bob's car. We start driving down to the Coronado Bridge, and as we're driving, Bob says, Carl, grab, grab the big book out of the glove box. Bone up on working with others. It's like, all right. Uh, all <clears> right. <throat> mm-hmm. And he says, ah, forget it. We're going to wing it. So we we get down to the base of the Coronado Bridge, and everything that San Diego County has available for a situation like this is there. The fire department is there. The police department is there. The paramedics are there. The on-duty psychologist is there. All of the resources the community has are all there. And Bob and I walk up on this scene, and the fireman who seems to be in charge says, is one of you Bob W.? Bob goes, yeah, that's me. And he goes, I don't know what you're going to do. We've been talking for an hour and a half, and he ain't budging, but go ahead. Hands him this little speakerphone contraption, and Bob says, Blair? And you can hear on the other end, Bob, is that you? (laughs) And Bob says, yes, Blair, it's me. Now get the hell down from that bridge. And you hear, okay. one alcoholic can affect another alcoholic like no one else can don't forget that only us can help us we have a responsibility to take our seats in the rooms of alcoholics anonymous because nobody else can help us but us i told you before i two years sober i got an honorable discharge out of the navy and i was still push starting the same car that i got sober in and I was puttering on up, and I was going to go to school. And on my way up, I'm, just, I'm only hitting on one or two cylinders. You know, It's about ready to fall apart, and I'm thinking, I really need a life. Man, do I ever need a life? I Man, I need a life. And I started thinking, you know, I'll stop by some meetings when I get a chance, but I'm going to go to school, I'm going to work, and I'll stop by some meetings when I get a chance, but you know what, I'm going to be busy. i got to get a life. I've heard people talk about that in AA, that they have lives. I need one of those, and I'm going to go get one of those, and then I'll be more active in AA. And I pulled into this what we call the 502 Club in Covina, and the man making coffee at that meeting became my next sponsor. Bob and I had made an agreement. He had to stay in the Navy another two years. The ship was going to Asia for nine months. I needed a new sponsor. And man making coffee had this medallion that said 1951, which meant he was 10 years sober when I was born, for God's sake. And he said the very same thing to me that that first fellow said to me when I was fresh out of treatment. Eddie Cochran said, hey, never seen you here before. What are you doing? This time I had a much better answer. I said, sir, it's very nice to see this meeting hall here. I'm going to be living in the area, but I'm going to be going to school and I'm going to be working. I need to get a life and I'll stop by some meetings when I get a chance. So it was nice to see where the meeting hall is, but I'm going to be real busy. And he just sort of chuckled the way he would. He would chuckle like hee 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 hee. And that's exactly what he did. He laughed at me and he goes, oh, school and work, that's wonderful. But that's what we do in between meetings, son. And what he was really telling me is that I needed to live in Alcoholics Anonymous and visit the world. Instead of trying to hash it out there in the world and visiting Alcoholics Anonymous when convenient. It's really been the core of my life, living by that principle that has allowed me to stay this long comfortably. Is that I really, really view life as what am I doing in between meetings. First thing he told me to do was put new guys in that car. And I thought, ugh. Oh, i got to push start the thing. There's a hole in the floorboard. I mean, it's going to fall apart. One of them might fall through the floorboard and sue me, as if I had anything to for anybody to sue me for. And he said, put new guys in your car. Your life will get better. I didn't see how, but I, I reluctantly I did, mainly because I remembered he was 10 years sober when I was born. So I put new guys in my car, and that very first night that I did that, I realized this man had not lied to me. The very first night I did that, my life got better. I remember looking over my shoulder after the meeting, and by God, my life got better. The new guys were push-starting my car. <laughs> he didn't say how much better. He just said better. <laughs> I can describe what has really happened in my life in the last 22 years in Alcoholics Anonymous by, uh, by summing it up with this story. Through a series of events, uh, I had to be at this thing down in Nogales, Arizona, uh, uh, some sort of convention, and I, I called my mom. This is back in like 1998 when before everybody had cell phones, but people carried pagers. Remember those things, pagers? And I called my mom before I left because you know, those pagers had big blackout areas where it might not work in a certain part of the country, and if you've ever been to Nogales, Arizona, you would suspect that, that would be a blacked-out area. I called my mom and I said, "Mom, before uh, if you try to call me or try to page me this weekend and I don't answer, don't be worried. I got to go to Nogales, Arizona." And she said, "Oh, you've got to call Don and Leona and go visit them if you're going to be down there." And I said, "Mom, uh, who's Don and Leona?" And she goes, "Oh, that's right. You haven't seen them since you were nine. You probably don't remember, but they're lifelong friends of your father's and mine. In fact, Don was best man at our wedding, and so please give them a call." So I called up Don and I said, "Don, this is Carl Morris." And, I'm going to be in the area this weekend and he goes, oh, bring your golf clubs. We'll go golfing. Now, that kind of surprised me that he knew that I loved to golf. And But the fact is, I'm a golf whore. I'll golf with anybody at any time for any reason. I just love to golf. So I brought my clubs and on that Saturday afternoon, I met him at his country club and we started walking along the golf course. And as we were walking along, he started to ask me very specific, pertinent questions about my life. I mean, he just knew everything about my life, and I was really confused as to how he knew. I mean, he knew what school I had graduated from, what my bachelor's degree was in, what what companies I'd been with since then, uh, the recovery homes I'm involved with. He just knew everything about my life, and by the fourth hole, I stopped and I go, Don, I'm feeling a little bit uh, inadequate, for lack of a better term, because I've been trying to squeeze in a couple of questions as to what you retired from, but you obviously know an awful lot about my life, and I'm wondering, how do you know that? And he said, well, two reasons, Carl. First reason is before your father passed away two years ago, he could not stop talking about you. He was so proud of everything you were doing inside and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, you couldn't shut him up. Now, that wasn't news to me. By taking your direction, my father and I had reestablished a great relationship. I was 10 years sober when he passed away. And so we established a great relationship. And had I disregarded that, I don't know about your story, but in my case, had I Procrastinated or sort of disregarded my chance at reestablishing a relationship with my father as soon as I could. And if I would have missed the chance, in my case, I don't know about yours, but I would have been walking around the rest of my life as half a man if I would have missed out on reconnecting with my father. So it was nice to hear, but it wasn't news to me. But the next thing he said, I couldn't even golf anymore. He said, Besides, I get the Christmas letter every year. And it's like, yeah! I finally got in that damn thing. Uh, The last five years of my sobriety have been one of the most wonderful and painful times of, uh, of my life, really. I got married. Wonderful. We had two kids. Incredible experience. Unfortunately, we wound up divorced about a year and a half ago, but we've we have we've worked out a really amicable relationship for the well-being of the kids. We're good friends, and we are committed partners to raise these two kids, and we actually are much better uh, divorced than we were married. Who knew that would happen? But I love my kids. I never knew there was a level of love that you can have for a, other human beings like this until I had kids. I never knew it. And I love them with all my heart. And I would never, ever, ever trade my kids for the first drink. Never in a million years would I trade my kids for the first drink. But I'm alcoholic. Although I would never trade them for the first drink, I would trade them for the second drink like that. So therefore, I must stay in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's not a choice for me. It must be. I must stay in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous because from that, everything everything else comes from that. So therefore, I'd like to thank Larry again for asking me to uh, come down here, which allows me to take an action once again that signifies that Alcoholics Anonymous is the center of my life. God bless and have a great week.